So, hello and welcome to this episode of the Divine Comedians podcast. I'm your host, Paula Wiseman, and today I am lucky enough to be chatting with comedian, podcaster and author, Ian Moore. So, hey, Ian, thanks for joining me today. It's lovely to be here, Paula. Lovely to be here. Thank you so much. Well, here's home. I'm in rural France. (laughs) I love being here. (laughs) Thanks so much. So usually I like to start by going back in time and talking a little bit about childhood, something we don't normally know about for a lot of comedians. Um, So what were you like as a kid? Where did you grow up? I kind of travelled around a lot as a kid. I I was born in Blackburn in Lancashire. And then when when I was six, we moved to Kings Lynn in Norfolk. And then when I was 10, we moved to uh, Horsham in Sussex. And then when I was 17, I moved to London. So I've been all over the place, which um, it kind of informs the kind of person you become because you're having to fit in so often. I mean, I went to seven different primary schools. Oh, wow. So it's a case of, you know, making new friends quickly until you get to a certain age and you just go, do you know what? I can't be asked for friends anymore. So I'm just <laughs> I'm just going to be a miserable teenager now. Thing. you can't tell from your accent that you're a you're a northerner by birth you know no well that's del- <laughs> I say that's deliberate that's nothing against the northern accent at all but what happened was when I let when we left Blackburn I went to East Anglia my first day at school in East Anglia I was beaten up for having a for having a dodgy accent which is a bit oh, no. r- rich coming from East Anglians frankly <laughs> um so I very quickly adopted an East Anglia accent uh, and then when we moved down south, I was beaten up on my first day at school for having an East Anglian accent. So I kind of, wherever I am, I will slip quite easily into what needs to needs to be said to survive. Oh, you can't win, can you? Do you know what I mean? No, you can't. You really can't. I mean, it's such a small country and so many accents and people are really protected over them. You know, so it's it really is a case of, for instance, when I was gigging, I'd always make sure that I went out and heard people before right. in in somewhere that have, would have a strong accent, for instance, Newcastle, um, just so that when you are heckled, you know exactly what's being said. and You don't just stand there on, on a stage in Newcastle with my pseudo Cockney accent going, I'm terribly sorry. Um, could you repeat that? It doesn't it doesn't <laughs> it doesn't work. So it's a good skill to have in, in retrospect. Yeah, I think that's the thing with the northern accent, isn't it? It's it can be, you know, in its purest form, it can be a little bit indecipherable. Well, I, I, well, I, it. The, what I find is it's not necessarily indecipherable. I just find people get really defensive. Like yeah. you know, yeah. it, you can say, "Oh, so you know, you've been doing a gig in Leeds, and you go, oh, and somebody will say something to you, and you go, all oh, right, so you're from Leeds,' and they'll just get, they'll go, no, I'm not I'm from Rotherham,' <laughs> and you go, well, all right, <laughs> my apologies." <laughs> so i mean i suppose so you having moved around a lot i suppose you couldn't as you said you couldn't make a lot of friends and stuff so you would have been quite insular as a kid yeah definitely um I lived a lot in my in my head um yeah and that was just again it was kind of a self-preservation thing i played mm. once i got to the age where i played a lot of football it did become easier then you didn't have to make so much effort to make friends because it was you already had a team that you were joining and you know they they quickly became colleagues you know even at the age of 10 11 that's the the football bonding side of thing helps enormously but no for the most part I I was always just just happy enough to be on my own you know I didn't have I didn't need people around me yeah yeah so, I mean, what was the plan? Was there any kind of, was there any grand plan for when you left school? Uh, did you want to kind of 
following your dad's footsteps or anything like that? <laughs> oh no, uh, no, <laughs> I didn't. My, my, well, my dad, uh, you know, he worked in business and industry, and you know, did did very well. But that never, that never interested me at all. Um, from a fairly early age, I wanted to be a film director. That's that was always my. That was always my goal, yeah. uh, and, and that was partly influenced by my dad as well. Because you know, I, from an early age, we would sit and watch old, what, even was, even then, were old black and white films. Yeah, yeah. Um, and that kind of fired an enthusiasm just in filmmaking. I mean, it never happened, uh, which which largely fed my bitterness <laughs> to, to, to become a stand-up. <laughs> So, I mean, what, so what did you, so what did you do? Did you go to college? Did you, did you, yeah, try and, I, did you after, film or? I was the last of, uh, the last generation to do O levels before GCSEs came yeah, in. Yeah. Uh, which I'm still bitter about as well because they made them incredibly hard just so the first year of GCSEs would look superb. <laughs> I'm not, I'm not letting any of this go, by the way. <laughs> um, then I went on to college and do A levels. Um, and I did, I did, I won the prize at the college for history. And I remember the prize giving at the end of, you know, after, after, after the results came out, there was a prize giving and Lord such and such or other was handing out the prizes. And you made a very prominent, I suppose you're, I suppose you're reading at Oxford or Cambridge now. And I just went, no, mate, media studies, Polytechnic, Central London. And I'd made this absurd decision because I had, I could have gone to Cambridge, but I made this absurd decision because I just wanted to do film and I was too young to be accepted into film schools. And also my parents had just split up at the time and they were both in the audience and it was the first time they'd been together since they'd split up. Oh, wow. And I really think I just wanted to upset them. <laughs> so, <laughs> so it was a, it was a, a backfiring life decision that, um, in, in hindsight, I'm fine with it now, but no, it's one of those things that I've carried around for a bit as well, really. Yeah, yeah. No, you've got, you've got to go with your heart at the end of the day, isn't it? Do you not really feel you have, you have, you, I, I, you know. And I just, I just, I don't think I'd have been any good at Cambridge. I don't think I was mature enough to try and fit in with people who just, who I just wasn't like at all, or I assume I wouldn't be like. That's maybe not. That's maybe not the case. Whereas moving to London was the education in itself really mm. rather mm. than the course was you know i think media studies is important but i think the course that i was on was was wasn't particularly well run yeah yeah so i mean did it open any doors i mean so, so how did how did the comedy thing start did you have a did you have to get a proper job first or? it didn't open any doors it, it <laughs> shut quite a few um no, what because after you know, I just couldn't get a job. I couldn't get a job in film at all, mm. and all I wanted to do was was work my way up as a runner, just make just make tea on a film yeah, set. Yeah, and yeah. I sent off hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of letters. Maybe had three interviews, but I didn't know anyone. And if yeah. you don't know anyone, yeah. I don't know if it's changed now, but certainly then, if you didn't know anyone, you were not going to break into film in in Britain, not at all. So I, I, I kind of you know did temporary jobs. Um, then I got a job as a runner for a, for an editing house, which was all right. But it's I did, didn't want to become an editor. That wasn't what I wanted to do. So I just became kind of office manager. And and then a friend of mine, um, one of my oldest friend, in fact, Charlotte. Um, she she was living round the corner from us in South London, and she said, "Look, I'm going to a comedy show tonight. Do you want to come?" Um, 
I went, yeah, I'd never been to a comedy show. I'd ne- never, you know, never, it wasn't on my radar at all. Um, and it was, it was the Banana Cabaret at the Bedford in Balham. And we went there and I still remember the bill. Um, it was, it was Matt Hardy opening, Jojo Smith, then the amazing Mr. Smith, uh, and then the Tracy brothers closing. And Charlotte asked me at the end of the show, she said, what do you think? And I did this typical bloke thing and just went yeah it's all right <laughs> it's all right i could do that and i just didn't think any more about it and then she rang up a couple of weeks later and said right you put your money where your mouth is i've booked you a five minute open spot if you want to be so arrogant as to think you can do that you go and do it um and i did you know i did and, and it kind of went from there you know quite quickly actually i was very lucky yeah so i mean how do you go from being an, this insular kid to standing on a stage in front of people, do you know what I mean? It takes a lot of balls, doesn't it? To uh... it does. It, it's I don't I don't know whether it was I don't know if it was balls. I don't I don't see it as a brave decision. I see it as kind of I was backed into a corner because there was right. so there was an element of survival about it. Uh, there was also just nothing else going on in my life. Nothing. Not I mean that professionally. Mm-hmm. Um, and I just thought, well, you know, I want I, by that time I. I still wanted to be a director. I, I wanted to be Woody Allen. I wanted to be this kind of comedy writing auteur. So I wanted to write comedy. So it was vaguely going in the right direction. Seeing as nothing was going on, I just thought, well, you know, just embrace it. Just see what you can do. Um, and it went okay. It, you know, I, the first gig, I, I barely remember the first gig because the nerves were just, you know, they just kind of block it out. Um, but it went it, must have gone okay because I, I I immediately booked myself a second gig, thinking that I knew everything. And uh, my second gig was at a pub in North London. Uh, what was it called? The Huntingdon Arms, I think it was called in in Highbury. Um, an open spot night, sixteen acts on. I was the sixteenth of sixteen going on. And, uh, people, people were. It's an old line, but people genuinely were thinking it was a hostage situation by that point in the evening. <laughs> And I had friends and family there as well. And I did so badly that some of those friends haven't spoken to me since. And and that was, what, 25 years ago? (laughs) (laughs) I really stunk the place out. Um, And then then I stopped. And then I just stopped for for a few months and sort of thought, well, if I'm going to do this, you have to you have to learn a bit more. You have to you know, you have to write. You have to be tighter. Um, You just have to be better. So I went away and, and wrote stuff and, and thought about it and thought about the kind of person I wanted to be on stage. And then went back to the same gig about six months later, possibly. And and it went fine. Didn't storm it, didn't die, but it went fine. And then I just started booking open spots from there. Yeah. I mean, that's the thing. I suppose a lot of comedy is kind of making a persona for yourself. Yeah. I mean, how natural was that? Was it just, was it a natural thing? <sighs> You know, think it, you wear a suit on stage and, you know. Yeah, I think that um, it was, I think my, my early days as a stand-up were probably a fair reflection of me as a person at that time, um, which is, you know, a bit angry, very sarcastic, cold even, um, not really knowing who I was, probably. Uh, I was, what, I was 26, something like that, Um my, I didn't feel like my life had started properly because because uh, I didn't have a job that I was happy yeah, yeah. in doing, and I was temping a lot by then. 
Um, so yeah, I think early days, it did reflect who I was then. And then it changes over time. You know, as you become more confident as a person, as you become, as different things happen off stage, you, you've got to, I think, you've got to go with who you are. Uh, I, I think that, you know, certainly, certainly the last 10, 15 years, maybe maybe not as long as that, but doing stand-up, I've become more relaxed as a stand-up because I'm much more relaxed and happier as a person off stage. And, and, and you do material that reflects that. Yeah. So, I mean, are you still, well, I'm, I'm assuming you're, you're a confident performer. Do you still suffer from nerves at all? Or you, you're just, when you get on, you're good to go? Not really. I don't. I, it's, um, it's an interesting thing, actually. I, I was doing a gig not long ago and I've got one of these kind of stress monitors on my watch. And um, before the gig, it was the, the stress levels were quite high. Right. And then as soon as I hit the stage, the stress levels were absolutely zero. You know, but I don't know if I was dead. Technically, I might have been dead. <laughs> but yeah, completely zero for the whole. It was a it was a corporate award show, so I was on stage for about an hour and a half. Absolutely nothing. There was no. I'm just kind of in. Been doing it so long, partly, but I also, you know, you pick up the skills. Yeah, yeah. And I'm in my element. I'm in control of whatever's in that room, and and that's fine. You know, that's fine with me. I, I am a control freak, so being you know the uh, controlling the orchestra like that is uh it comes naturally i guess yeah i mean that's the thing at the end of the day all eyes are on you do you know what i mean you're in charge of that room and yeah. uh, you know you there's as i was saying earlier you've got to have, have some balls to get on a stage and you know command command that i think that so area. i think i think also um like i say i don't, i don't like to see it in terms of courage it's just some people are suited to some things. Um, and I think that it's, it suits me to stand up. Mm. You know, being on stage just suits me. It's not that I'm a natural show off or anything. It's just I have the abilities to be able to work a room and get away with it. <laughs> yeah. I mean, that's the thing. It's not something that everybody could do. I mean, I, I couldn't do it. I definitely couldn't do it. You know. Have you ever tried it? No, I haven't. But, you know, I think I'd just, I'd probably die and you know, just retire from public life entirely. <laughs> <laughs> it's not a pleasant experience it's struggling on stage. It really isn't. And and they do, those gigs do stay with you. And it's a cliche to say that you do learn from those gigs, but what you learn from those gigs is that you don't like dying on stage. <laughs> it's, it's, it's as simple as that. So how you change that the next time around is, is, is you know, it can be different. It can be, it can be a different gig entirely. It can be a bit of luck. But um, no, it's, it's it, those long journeys back home after you've died on your ass. I remember one in Liverpool, and I was still an open spot, so it's a, a long time ago. And I really did, you know, had an awful gig, had a, a genuinely awful gig. And the compere, who who was a dreadful man anyway, um, just came on stage and put his arm around me and went, "Yeah, next time, mate, just fucking hang yourself, all right." And, uh, wow. you know, and just <laughs> that didn't help in the four hour drive back down south that night. You know, it's and and you can react two ways to that. You can either go, geez, I don't, I don't want to do it. Why am I doing this? Why am I, you know, and I was still then an open spot. Why am I, why am I driving up to Liverpool for no money to be told that I need to commit suicide rather than <laughs> continue in, in the world of show business? <laughs> it's, you know, you've got to have. I think you've just got to have a uh, kind of a bloody mindedness to you that you are going to keep going. And that, and I don't see that as bravery. That is just kind of, 
I won't let this beat me. Yeah. Well, there's obviously something there to, to make you keep going back. Do you know what I mean? Like, it's yeah. like, it's like going back for a, another beating. Do you know what I mean? It is. <laughs> but not it is. Knowing, not knowing, knowing whether you're going to get beaten or not. Is, uh... Yeah. Yeah. It is, is it, you know, it's, it's maybe stretching the point a little bit, but it is a bit in the early days when you're learning, it is a little bit like an abusive relationship because you, you do get, you do get a slap and then you walk away and then you come back for more, <laughs> hoping this time it'll be different. Won't be as severe. No, you should have had yeah. some money on that, that first gig you did. You should have maybe stuck some money on it. You could have uh, made a couple <laughs> of quid. <laughs> I was just happy to survive. <laughs> So you were talking about corporates there. I mean, you must have done a lot of corporates over the years. Yeah. So have you gigged in, a, like, a lot of comedians? You must have gigged in some really weird, weird venues over the years. Yes, it's corporates especially, because they, the, the rules don't apply. You know, you don't, when you go to a comedy club, you, you're immediately looking around. You're almost like a secret service agent checking, right, where's the exit? How's the lighting? How far are the audience from the stage? Are they seated at? tables or are they in rows as they rakes you you're checking all those things out yeah yeah but with a corporate that's just uh, you know it can i one of the corporates i did was for harley davison and it was just eight blokes in a in a suite at the landmark hotel on marleybourne road and it genuinely felt because i i'm a mod obviously and i dress as a mod so having you know eight harley davison <laughs> bikers it felt like this was a kidnap situation and that they were going to take <laughs> demand ransom I it, it just and it went very well it was fine but it was such a bizarre a weird non-comedy environment to walk up to and just you know these these blokes just sitting around this table just finished their dinner here's your comedian just walk in it's just so odd so i think that you you wonder how they choose how do you how would they even choose somebody to perform do you know what i mean it's like it's, a, it's yeah. such a weird process. it is it, i mean they go that was through uh that was through a big agency as i remember so they've gone to the agency and gone this is the situation and then the agency have gone right who have we got who has no shame and will do anything for money and and that, <laughs> they ended up with me top of the list <laughs> yeah it'll do anything <laughs> So, I mean, you've, you've performed all over the world, like uh, in Montreal, obviously. Um, um, do, you, do you think that comedy travels well? Or do you have to basically, you know, as we were saying earlier about if you go north, do you have to tweak your material to suit your audience? Uh, I think you have to address who your audience is, um, you know, and, and allow yourself the space to, to kind of get your feet under the table, as it were. I think what I've found with um, a lot of overseas gigs that we do, are generally expat audiences who yeah, are yeah. desperate for you know for some connection with back home anyway yeah, so yeah. so they're 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 fairly easy in in that respect montreal was slightly different and i tend to what i tend to do in that situation is become so english so you know that you know they're thinking like who's this david david niven's just walked on stage i remember <laughs> i did a festival in um, in boston in massachusetts and one of the gigs I did, I was following um, this burlesque troupe, uh, which was bizarre in itself, just in the back room of this pub in Boston. And they did very well, and there were lots of whooping and hollering and wolf whistles and stuff like that. And then just uh, next was please welcome Ian Moore. And I just sort of strode on in my suit and shirt and tie and just went, all right, that's enough of that. 
And and they just all went, oh, oh, hello. He's, he's English. Okay, all right, we'll better listen to this. And, and uh, you know, if you, you've just got to, it doesn't matter where you go, you've got to establish your credentials. So, you know, you really do. Yeah, now they do love a British accent over there. They really, of course, yeah, they really yeah. do, don't they? It's it's yeah. kind of crazy. Yeah, I mean, I did a uh, a club in New York just before the pandemic, and it had always been my ambition to play New York, and it mm. was just just wonderful, you know. Just it's like you say because they love the accent so much, they're just hanging on every word, um, and giving you the time to to really explain your material and, and, and really time it perfectly without having to worry about an interruption. Yeah, yeah. Oh, you heard that, I don't know if you heard the story, like Vic and Bob did Montreal one year, I think, and they were just so meant, it was just so surreal that the, the audience literally just sat there looking at them, not, not knowing yeah. what to make of it, you know, coming on stage with this carpet. Yeah, no, what's the... <laughs> I, I I did hear about that. Yeah, and uh, I think everybody heard about that. It's one of the first things anybody ever tells you when you go to Montreal. Um, just checking that you haven't brought a carpet with you. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, that's the thing about British humour, isn't it? It's so diverse. It is, and, and 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 but I mean, Vic and Bob. There's not, uh, you know, Vic and Bob are great, and uh, but. That was that was just a very odd booking, in my, in my opinion, <laughs> because the Canadians, I don't, you know, I think you have to be sort of immersed in a li- in it a little bit before Vic and Bob roll on with a with a carpet. Because <laughs> yeah. I don't know who was on, I don't know who was on before them, but you you need to kind of be broken in gently to bigger Vic and Bob, <laughs> not not just hit over the head as soon as they come on the stage. That's the thing when you look at what the you know the talent that that Canada has provided, you know, like Mike Myers and Jim Carrey and mm. all these, like Brian Reynolds and all these guys. And I mean, it's such a, a huge, huge, an ocean apart, yeah. basically. Uh, yeah, and, and great, great circuit comics, you know, like Phil Nickel and, and mm. Tom Stade and Mike Wilmot and, you know, really Tony Law, fantastic comics, you know, really, really good comics. And they're all nuts. There's something about Can- Canadians are all nuts. Any <laughs> Any Canadian comic I've ever worked with has does have some problem i think (laughs) (laughs) they are all mad in their own way maybe that's all comics but canadians take it to a to a higher level (laughs) i I suppose they they just want to differentiate themselves don't they to the americans you know we're not not yeah yeah exactly exactly that there is that yeah 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 so i mean so you're now based in rural france so I mean, what prompted them? Like that, you know, it's not something you you, you wake up every morning and say, "Oh, I'm just going to move to rural." France. Well, it was just that we could, you know. Just my wife's, um, she's half French, and her family are from around here, and we've been coming on holiday every year for for about ten years by that point. And we just thought, we, you know, look, my wife wanted a bigger family than we than we could probably afford in the UK because I didn't yeah. want to have to do every crappy gig seven nights a week to pay yeah. for a mortgage to live in a place I didn't want to live in. So, again, it just seemed to make sense. It, it just everything, again, it's one of these things where people said, well, that's a brave decision. If if I'd thought that it was brave in any way, we probably wouldn't have done it. Mm. It's it, was ju- it just seemed a natural thing to do. Um, obviously, I don't have to be anywhere specific. Uh, and Natalie, my wife, didn't, she just wasn't enjoying her job. We just had a our first son um it was the right time and everything you know mm. and like i say on stage it's it, the reason why we live in rural france is it's the closest place to london we could afford to buy a house so yeah. it's, it's <laughs> it ticked all the right boxes 
that's is that the cost of living is it, it, it very very different over there um yeah, that's a it's a difficult to say at the moment because the cost of living is just going through the roof everywhere but it's yeah. not as bad yeah. here as it is over there um uh some things are cheaper and property is one of them so that frees up other money you know but basically what what i did for for most of the time that i've been here was money that we would have spent on a mortgage um on a house in the uk i've been spending on travel every month mm. to get to and from work um but then coming back here at the end of a at the end of a working weekend and i you know no offense to crawley <laughs> and all that which is where we lived, but it's not a patch on rural France. <laughs> no, no, I know Crawley very well, and I, I think right. he's, he's definitely upgraded. Oh yes. <laughs> <laughs> so, I mean, was this was this pre Brexit? I hate mentioning the B word. Oh yeah, yeah, yeah. It was. Uh, We've been here seventeen and a half years. It wow. Was, uh, we moved over in two thousand five. Yeah, yeah. Uh, so yeah, I mean, and and. And everything was fine, you know, except except there was always this kind of uh, the Brexit thing on the horizon. And, um, yeah, you know, you could just, I could feel the way it was going mm. in the UK. Um, so as soon as Brexit happened, I, I uh, applied for French nationality, which I've, which my wife and kids are all French anyway. Um, but I've got, I'm French now, as you can tell from my accent. <laughs> um, <laughs> The slight stripage on your on your on your yeah it is I do make the effort. <laughs> <laughs> well done. <laughs> so I mean, you're. I mean, has it affected? I mean, I suppose with travel and stuff, travel and stuff must have been horrible wow. uh, this it's, last couple of years. It's to be perfectly honest with you, the, the joy of the travel <laughs> became pretty horrible after a few months. It was all very kind of bullish statement of mine that it doesn't matter to me I can travel anywhere I'm good at traveling um but it wears you down it yeah. just just wears you down you you can't you know you can't travel Ryanair every weekend for 15 years and and not be brutalized like some kind of Rottweiler puppy um and even though I tried to change up my journeys every week so that it wouldn't be it didn't feel like a commute and everything would be different after a while, physically and mentally, it takes its toll. You know, it became harder and harder. Physically, I I can't do that anymore. Mm. Anyway, I can't I can't travel every weekend because I've got um, rheumatoid arthritis, which you know. So every journey now knocks me back for a couple of days. Um, so yeah, I mean, it, it very it very quickly lost its shine. The travel side of things. I mean, I, I managed to get through it mostly because of an enormous level of self-delusion in, in that I just always thought I was a spy. I know that sounds really weird <laughs> that you just, you know, because I always wore a suit. So there was always that element to me as yeah, well. that yeah. I would just be striding across Charles de Gaulle airport. And yeah, and you have to, you, you had to kind of, I, I had to certainly keep that going. Otherwise I just would have been even more miserable <laughs> than I was. <laughs> So, I mean, what's your what's your journey time usually? It depends. Like? It depends entirely, um, you know, how you do it. The Ryanair, th- if I go to my local airport, and they used to fly every day when we first moved it, but now it's only twice a week, so it's not really right. convenient anyway. But that would be the shortest journey time. It'd be an hour drive to the airport, two hours before the, the yeah, flight takes off. Fly. The flight would take an hour. Then you're at Stansted and, you know, then you've got 45 minutes into central London or three and a half hours train to Birmingham or hire a car 
you know, generally on average, I would say between nine and 12 hours. Yeah. Oh my God. And, 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 and it just, like I say, it just takes its toll. It used to be that on a Saturday, I got to the point on a Saturday night where I just, I, I had to keep moving. I just had to, I, I could get another hotel and then get home tomorrow, but I'd be getting home later. So if I'd finished um, on a Saturday night in central London before half 11, I would take the overnight bus from London to Paris, mm. which was just horrific, yeah. just, just horrific. Yeah. Um, and no way for, for anybody dressed in a suit to be traveling. I, <laughs> 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 Because I, I, you know, I, I wear I wear Edwardian frock coat, long suits. You know, this I just bizarre. And I was threatened loads of times on these on these buses. It was some really nasty characters on them. And the only way I could get through it was I used to buy a load of Marks and Spencer's pina colada cans of drink and just get absolutely whacked off my face <laughs> and sit at the back, looking menacing in my Edwardian frock coat. You you do what you do to survive. That's that's all I'm saying. That's the thing. That's like if you're doing the same route, it, the shine kind of wears off very very quickly, doesn't it? You know? Oh, definitely. And my dad, my dad, years and years ago, just said, you know, whatever you do choose to do for a living, don't just don't commute because it will it will, it will make you it makes the world smaller. Your mind becomes smaller. Yeah. And then I, you know. <laughs> 20 years later i picked <laughs> the world's longest commute <laughs> so i mean how many are you still doing it i mean how many times a week you do, is it just once a week or no it's it's, it's every now and it's very intermittent now because yeah. i've largely stopped um doing circuit comedy because i wasn't doing enough of it um yeah yeah i it's just too difficult it's too difficult to, also it's too difficult to make money you know, yeah. I, I really feel for people who are on the circuit in the UK because travel costs have gone up, you know, in such a different way to the way wages have gone up. It's, it's, it's virtually impossible to make a living as a circuit comedian now. Yeah. So I'm, I'm very lucky. I, I go back and I do my corporates um, and I write the books. Yeah. You know? Yeah. It's, yeah. Uh, it's, it's, and it's, it's, it's become an easier, because finally I'm here as well. That's the thing without, because I was away every week for like, well, up to the pandemic. So say 15 years, I was away every week. Wow. And you're, you know, that means that I'm not really anywhere. Yeah. You know, I'm not, I'm not here often enough to say it is my home. My home genuinely became airports and Eurostar, you know, and I, I wasn't seeing the kids grow up. And, mm. and Natalie was basically a, a single parent with, with three boys and, you know, and the, you know the circus of animals we've got dotted around this place, so, which is entirely her fault. So it's, uh, I have no sympathy there. Um, yeah, it just it just is much easier as a life now. Yeah, yeah. No, it's, it can't be fun living out of a suitcase. Well, it's yeah. not, and, and never unpacking. That's the yeah. thing because I was away yeah, yeah, so yeah. much. You do, it's just never fully unpacking. You're just taking the dirty washing out of that one, putting clean washing in, and and then you're off again. There were times, you know, when when I just couldn't face it. I just yeah. could not face another journey. And yeah. and I remember being in tour and my flight was sort of late afternoon. And I just sat in this bar in tour at lunchtime. And, and I think I was going somewhere appalling like Jonglers Portsmouth. Um, <laughs> that's, that's everybody's generic for an appalling gig, by the way. Um, my neck of the and, <laughs> oh, it was, did you go? It was no, awful. I mean, I'm from Bognor originally, so uh, right. 
Okay. Well, I don't, I like Bogner. There's okay. a kind of old world charm to Bogner, but there really is. just, just brutal. Um, <laughs> and so I sat at this bar longer and longer. I knew I wasn't going anywhere. I just knew I wasn't, I knew I couldn't face it. I just wow. could not face getting on that Ryanair flight and then getting that train down to Portsmouth and doing a gig to people who, you know, were so disinterested. And couldn't bloody hear you because the sound system in Jonglers Portsmouth was set up for for post show music DJs yeah, and not yeah. comics at all. In this, you know, this hangar of a room. I once did a gig at Jonglers, but there's Christmas at Jonglers Portsmouth, and um, two women threw their their Christmas dinner at me, um, and it just it was an awful piece of food anyway. So it just kind of hit the suit and then went slowly sliding down and this wow. kind of amorphous mass of turkey and gravy so I just walked off stage and as I'm leaving the venue 10 minutes later uh, the manager is giving them a bottle of champagne to apologize for whatever I'd done um yeah no I don't I don't miss being on the road in certain respects yeah so <laughs> no, no. for a gig basically no never <laughs> And now you've had this U-turn, well, it's not you, not a, a new new path. So you've become this a, a hugely accomplished author, best-selling author now. Uh, not long ago, you completed a, a book tour for your latest novel, Death and Fromage. Um, so, I mean, what prompted writing a novel? I mean, had you always written, kept diaries and all that kind of stuff? No, because I, I wrote a couple of books about 10 years ago, which were basically about me um they were about my life in france mm. as opposed to my life on the road as a comedian mm. called alamod the first one and the second one was called c'est magnifique <laughs> and they came out of blogs there was just one day here years ago and it was so mad what with dogs and horses and hens and, and goats and kids and me still needing to get on a ryanair flight and I had no other way of dealing with it other than writing it down to try and process it for myself. And I started doing a regular blog of that. And that then I was approached by a publisher to turn those into, into books, um, which did which did all right. Um, but I'd always, the point was I'd always wanted to stay here as a writer. When I first came to this area of France in 1990, um I said to Natalie then I said I just I just want to retire here and write light undemanding comic novels that's all that's all I need yeah yeah and it's taken me you know 40 odd years <laughs> was it 30, <laughs> 30 odd years um but that yeah it's, they've just worked you know they've, they've just worked there's a, the the same kind of tone as I had in the in my memoir travel books is that it's a very sort of light playing of being a very English against being very French. And, and, and there's, there's lots of potential there. Um, and to put it in a genre book like crime writing um, means that it's slightly different. And it's really caught on, I think, cosy comedy, uh, cosy murder mysteries have really caught on anyway, partly because of um, Richard Osman, who's, mm. you know, who's helped everybody, yeah, yeah. frankly, by, you know, by kicking that door down. But also it's a kind of just, it's a, a lot of people just want a bit of release. They just want a bit of escapism. And, and that's what my books are. They, you know, they are, they just hopefully will make you laugh and entertain you. And there's nothing more in the ambition of them than that, you know. Um, 
but they've done very well, which is great. So that's it's now a series, you know. Yeah, and it's yeah. been picked up for TV as well, which is which amazing. Is That's the beauty yeah. of it, isn't it? You can literally write from anywhere in the world, and yeah, off the, yeah. Off the book goes to a publisher, kind of thing. Well, that's the thing. Also, as well, when I was traveling all the time, I'd managed to develop this um, ability to 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 basically live in a bubble, hmm. so that nothing else that was going on would would impinge that bubble if I was writing. Um, and often, I found that writing stand up was actually an easier thing to do if you move anyway because there's a rhythm to stand up um oh. when i write stand up um in my office here which is like a, a gabled office you can see from the thing it's a gabled office and i've got blackboards on the walls so i walk up and down and take notes um for stand up because that i'm kind of working the rhythm for material um so yeah it, you know i was able it, it, i can yeah literally work anywhere yeah, it must be very, very different disciplines, though. Do you know? I'm too, too. Would you say it's too, too extreme? Very, too very different. Very different. You know, I think with, I think, I think both require different um, approaches. Like for instance, with the stand up, like I say, I, I have to move. I have to be sort of busy, if you see what I mean. And sometimes the best time for writing stand up is actually when you've just come off stage because you're you're really in that moment. Mm. Yeah, yeah. Um, so a lot of ideas come to you at that point anyway. Whereas with books, it is literally, you know, I'm clocking in um and I'm writing till lunchtime. You know, it might be rubbish, but um I'm I'm not gonna leave here until yeah, I've done yeah. a thousand words. And 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 yeah, it it works. You know, I can thankfully do both kinds. Yeah, and I was going to ask if you've be, you've become, obviously become had to become a little bit more disciplined in you know I'm, right. I'm going to sit down. I'm going to write a thousand words. You know, as long yeah. as I get I get something down, it doesn't. You yeah, know, it's not going to. Well, in in a sense, it's a, it's a bit like stand up in that I've prepped. You know, the, I've prepped in advance of what I want to write. Um, so that I, you know, like the evening before, I'll just have a look at my notes. I'll have an idea of what I'm doing in that particular thousand words. And I'll also have the first line. I'll have the first line. Uh, if I don't have the first line, I'm not going to get anywhere. So I have to have the first line in my head, a bit like stand up mm. in terms of I really have to know what I'm saying in front of certain audiences straight away, or this could immediately drift. Um, so there are there are similarities, but like you say, they are they are very different disciplines in the end. Yeah, yeah. I mean, you you're also running a bit running a B and B there. So yeah. I mean, how how are you finding time to to do everything? I mean, it's just it's uh, yeah, life must be it's, pretty crazy. It's, <laughs> the story behind the B and B was that as my health started to fail uh, and I couldn't travel, I yeah. you know I had no idea if if what I was writing in terms of books were ever going to be successful. So I mm. had to have backup plan, a, an income. Yeah, you had to have an income, and also it was a partly a Brexit thing as well that I all my income up until that point had been earned outside of France, and I needed an income in France to to help my application process to be yeah, French. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, so that's why we started it, and I created a monster because it's, it's so successful whenever it's open it's just rammed um and i'm not you know i'm not mr happy go lucky i'm going to smile at you over your croissant i'm not you know but but they kind of because it's it's you know 95 percent french guests that we have they they kind of find it endearingly english that i'm that i'm so uptight <laughs> rude to the point of rudeness um 
And also, it did, you know, it did because Death and Croissant, the first one in the series, is about a middle-aged guy, a middle-aged English guy who runs a B&B in rural France. So, obviously, you can either argue that, that I have done absolutely no research whatsoever <laughs> or I've spent the last 17 years heavily undercover researching this thing. It's, yeah. it, and it, it's, how I, it's how I initially came to deal with the fact that I was giving out breakfast in the morning was by quietly murdering off all my guests <laughs> in uh, in mystery writing. So it's it it has worked. I'm 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 t- I'm kind of taking a back seat from it now um, because I'm just too busy. Yeah. But it will it's it's open for for friends and and whatnot. And 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 also my my two eldest children like to run it every now and then just to earn some money. Very yeah. good, very good. Yeah, it must be great for characters though for your books. I mean, you know, you must see people walk through the door and go, oh. Yeah. There we go. There's oh, absolutely. Yeah, and <laughs> and little foibles as well. You learn really little foibles, like little like people. Yeah, but people from northern France, like, like they won't. They only like butter with salt in it, you know. And and it be, these little things that you learn, these little characteristics that can that can really help with with um, making a character more colourful in your book. Uh, and people just, you know, nobody knows that. Nobody knows about Northern French people only butter with salt in it. So it's, yeah, from that point of view, it's, it's really handy, but I am, I'm tired of it. As I said, when we first came online earlier, I have been up all night ill and I had a full um, B&B last night. So that was breakfast for 12 people this morning. Oh, that, that was a long old shift. <laughs> <laughs> It's just as well you're sitting down, Ian, anyway. <laughs> yes. That's the thing. Normally I stand up when I do these kind of things, but I just haven't got the energy anymore. I, just, <laughs> when um, when a lot of these, at the start of the of lockdown, when, when people were doing Zoom gigs and stuff like that, I always thought, because I did them standing up. Yeah, yeah. And a lot of comics didn't what, do them standing up. Yeah. But a lot of comics just did them sitting down and then tried to do the same material, but didn't it didn't work for them because they didn't have the rhythm. Yeah, yeah. You know, very few comics sit down on the stage. Like Sean Collins does it, but you know, I have to keep moving, so I, I did it standing up, and therefore it felt more natural than it actually was. Again, it's all to do with your st- finding your style, isn't it? I mean, if you're yeah. You know, yeah. you see comedians who sit down. You know, Dave Allen, for example. Yeah. But it was all about storytelling. But yes. if you're more animated as a comedian, you need to be standing to... Yeah, and it depends how you're feeling, of course, as well. I remember well, one yeah. particularly fraught journey that took me to Oldham, I think it was, on a Tuesday night from, from rural France to Oldham. And um, it was in a, a room downstairs in a pub in Oldham, and they had like a, a column, uh, which just happened to be in the middle of the stage, like a, like a really fat lap dancer's pole, really. And for the entire 25 minutes I was on stage, I just leant on it. And it just it <laughs> felt, I mean, they must have thought, you are such a lazy man. You've only, you're only working 25 minutes a day and you can't do that. You're a stand-up, not a lean-to. But I, I, I loved it. I absolutely loved it. Yeah, I don't know. I don't know. When you, when you think about it, it kind of adds to the performance, doesn't it? You know, I think so, because you can almost choreograph it in a way that you would lean against the pole, the column, whatever it was. And then just as you were reaching um, a punchline or you wanted a laugh, you'd move away from the pole yeah. as a kind of shorthand for the audience to know, oh, here we go, you know, and, and it, it works. 
there we go. Maybe that's something you, you should have had luck as a, you know. You should have carried one around with me. <laughs> <laughs> Travelled around with a pole like this pole. <laughs> they wouldn't let any poles back into the UK, not Bye. since Brexit. There you go, boom. <laughs> Oh dear. So, I mean, um, you obviously use social media a lot as a as a tool. Um, have you found that you're using it a lot more now? As sort of the the author side of you has has taken more control. Yeah, definitely. Uh, it's it's a tool to just increase your audience and uh, and sell books. Really, that's you know that's that's you know that's what it's there. So there is a, also a side of it for me that I am stuck out here in rural France. Mm, yeah. Um, yeah. Um, and that, that it does provide a connection. You know, my wife and kids have been away for a week now. Uh, and I think you're the second person I've spoken English to in that week. I did a TV show yesterday and it just it felt like it felt really odd. Um, so yeah, it's, it's that connection as well with you. And I genuinely have met some interesting people on social media. I've met some right Burks. Don't get me wrong. But, <laughs> um, you know, but, oh, I enjoy it. I as long as you don't take it too seriously, that's the thing. Yeah, yeah. So, I mean, are you a fluent speaker or do you just, you could kind of, you can get by? No. Well, this is the thing. My wife said a couple of weeks ago that I am now fluent, which is the most terrifying thing to accuse anybody of because it means that people will test you out. Yeah. I don't, I don't want to speak to anybody, but you know, I'm not, I genuinely don't want Yeah, yeah, yeah. Nods and a wink. (laughs) It is. If I'm forced, I can, I can, yeah, I, I am. I wouldn't say fluent. I think she overdid it there, I, but I'm very good. Yeah, I'm very good. And you have to be at a certain level to get French nationality anyway. Mm. So, yeah. yeah. Well, I'm guessing they, they, they test you with your... You oh, know. it was a it was a horror show. My my te- I used to do material on this. I still do occasionally do material on this, but there was, there was one part of the test where um, the um, examiner, it was just me and her in this room, and she said, right, we're going to do a role play. Um, and I'll tell you what the role play is. I'll leave the room for two minutes. You prepare. We'll come back in and we'll record the role play. And she said, right, the role play is this. I'm going away for a month. I'd like you to look after my dog. Um, and she left the room and she came back in a couple of minutes later. I'd prepared. She said, I, I she pressed record on the machine. She said, I'm, I'm going away for a month. I'd like you to look after my dog. And I said, I don't want your dog. <laughs> and, and she she just could not hatch it, and she pressed stop on the machine and just said, "You must have the dog. You have to take the dog." And I'm going, "Well, why? Why do I? It's my choice. As long as we're discussing this, it's my. I don't want your dog." And she just could not accept that somebody had effectively broken the rules. But I hadn't broken the rules. I was allowed to prepare what I want. Anyway, I passed in the end, but it was. Um... <laughs> Man alive, that was that was really cool. That was really cool. I came out of there, and it, it become a really big issue for me to become French. I'd become incredibly paranoid about how people would be treated post Brexit. Uh, yeah. So oh, yeah, I ha- yeah. I had to be the same nationality as my family, and getting this language um, certificate was the first step, and I couldn't go anywhere without it. So when I came out after that, I just thought I've really really screwed this up and i didn't i didn't do it because i didn't say that because i'm a comic i didn't think oh this would be funny i just said it yeah possibly because i'm a comic but it didn't strike me as being particularly way off but she was so angry (laughs) 
they're so serious, aren't they? They're French, though. <laughs> oh, that you cannot, you cannot muck about it. anything that involves bureaucracy is just so deadly serious. Because I had loads of police interviews as well to become French. A group of armed policemen turned up at home one day, and just walked in the front door. And and my son and he had a few mates around of these armed police just walk in the lounge and they're all looking at me going like we know you go away every weekend but what do you do for a live what are you a hitman or something <laughs> and I so one of the interviews I had I was in this police cell and this um, uh, again it was just checking my papers checking why I wanted to become French it was it was a, it was the usual You're thing in a cell oh yeah oh no God they take these things so seriously. And uh, at the end, this policewoman, she said, she said, well, I'll, you know, well, OK, I'll I'll uh, I'll recommend you for French citizenship. And I said, thank you very much. And and she said, but you won't get it. I was like, what? <laughs> <laughs> what was all that about? Thanks and she said, no, you won't get it. And I, I, I know. And I said, well, why? why? What do you mean I won't get it? And she said, well, this is France. Nobody gets anything the first time they apply for it, which is just, you know, and that just sums up the whole process. Yeah, oh, that's crazy. You got there. You got there in the end. Two years almost to the day of wow. starting the process, I got it. And I used to, so I used to do this joke on stage just to wind people up because I did actually get my French citizenship um, two days before France won the World Cup in 2018. <laughs> and I, so on stage, I'd go, and, you know, I'd, it's very emotional for me because I never thought I'd ever see my country win a major international football tournament. The amount of abuse. I would get from that from that one traitor. <laughs> but there's always been that weird thing, isn't there, the, between the French and the the French and the Brits? It's just you know, it's not yeah. kind of no one can it's explain a, it, it, but it's you know. Well, the thing is, is that see, the, the, a lot of times I hear uh, British people, mainly more English people rather than British people, because I think the Celts do have a very good relationship with with France. You hear English people say, well, they don't like us. And that's just not true. It's just not. Seriously, it's not they don't like you, that you haven't even occurred to them. They are not giving you any thought whatsoever. You don't register to them. It's not a hate thing. It's just you're not French. Therefore, you are in in some ways, you know, not quite as developed. (laughs) That's how they see it. I, I, I like I like that attitude. I yeah. like it. I'm very much I'm no, I'm very much for that kind of things. I'm very French now. Yeah. Well, you look at the amount of croissants that are consumed in uh, in Britain. Well, you know. Listen, I served 24 mini croissants this Hot morning. I know, I know. I know about <laughs> croissants. There's nothing you can tell me about croissants I don't know. <laughs> are you? Do you make? Are you? Are you? Uh, I, I know you're kind of you make chutneys and all this kind of. You, yeah. You, all I do um no I I kind of the kind of free uh, the pre-cooked croissant that I buy and then I'll go to the boulangerie anyway but I did for the publicity for the first book death and croissant um the publisher came up with this idea that I would actually make film you know be filmed making croissant and it's such an involved process just it was a, if anybody wants to go on youtube and see what an utter disaster that was um <laughs> It was a right waste of time, frankly. Um, yeah, no, I don't, I don't. The word croissant in your. I know. I'm going to make it. I'm going to make it easier next. I'm going to death and beans on toast or something like that, and just it'd be a lot easier to film. 
Well, at least you haven't had to make you haven't had to make cheese. I'm assuming for this new book. No, not yet, not yet. <laughs> I'm waiting to see what ideas they come up with for this one. Just be careful for the next book. <laughs> what, yeah, what you name it. Well, the next one, the third one is already written. It's called Death at the Chateau. So if they want me to go and build a chateau, I don't think that's going to happen. <laughs> well, there's plenty of TV programs, isn't there, about renovating oh, chateaus yeah. and things on on the TV at the moment. So yeah. let's move on and talk a little bit about music. Now, you're obviously you're a self-proclaimed mod. Yeah. So I'm guessing that obviously covers your music tastes alongside your 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 clothing. To to a certain extent. I I've never with music um I don't think you can be that narrow that, with music. Yes, there's a lot of music that would be called mod that I like, the jam, mm. Star yeah, Council, yeah. Paul Weller, Small Faces, etc. But that is really only one part of my taste, you know. It's and it's not, it's not even a massive part of of what I listen to anymore. So it changes. What I listen to tends to change with um, with mood anyway, and I think mm. that's, that's the same for everybody. But um, you know, pre gig, I remember in my younger days pre gig, I'd, I'd have some when I was getting ready in the hotel room. It would be, you know, it's, a, it's a rocking, you know, like the faces, something like that. Something that would be party atmosphere, but also with a hint of aggression as well, that you would G yourself up yeah, yeah. for it. And then latterly, certainly for the last ten years before when I was getting ready in the hotel rooms, it was all it was all musicals. It was all uh <laughs> thigh slapping jazz hands. It's uh and that's and that became what I listened to, and it just put me in such a good mood that then I could just go on stage and try and well, not show that I'm in a good mood. Obviously, that wasn't the style of comic I watched, <laughs> but, um, but just feel good, you know, and uh, and it helped. It helped a lot. Yeah. So, I mean, have there been any kind of like favourite bands in your life that you've that have kind of followed? Well, we're to? betting betting here without the Beatles because the Beatles, are, you know, they they are number one and always will be. Uh, and it, to the extent that my eldest son now dresses like 1968 George Harrison, that's how that's how Beatles we are in our house um bands specifically pulp i absolutely adore pulp and my wife and i spoke because they've they've reformed to to go on tour next year so hopefully i think they will come to paris because jarvis's son still lives in paris as i i think uh star council which i still think is paul weller's greatest era and i know there'll be people listening to this going what about the jam and no it's not it's not all about the jam stop it um so the Star Council, for sure. Uh, and then big bands, you know, like Frank Sinatra with the Nelson Riddle Orchestra in the 1950s uh, reprise and parlophone albums, which are just, I find, magnificent and sweeping and, mm. you know, so much. And country music now, maybe it's a sign of my age. That, <laughs> you know, as they say, as you get older, your politics become more right-wing and you get into country music. Well, <laughs> I'm practically goose stepping to Dolly Parton when I get out of bed in the morning. Now it's I I love country music. Yeah, no, I mean it's it's lovely, isn't it, to have this? It must be awful just to only listen to one genre. I find it so narrowing. Yeah, and and the idea I think because you people see mods as being so very narrow, but 
I know I've never thought that about music. You can't you can't do that with music. You know, if mm. it moves you, it moves you. It shouldn't move you just because that suits the way you look. Um, I find that you know, I'd find that so restricting. Yeah, yeah. That's the general perception, though, of mods. Do you, do you know what I mean? You, oh, yeah, definitely. We are we are seen as you know po faced misery guts. <laughs> Who who simply won't allow anything else into their life if it's not if it's not got the mod stamp of approval? Yeah, I agree. I agree. Um, I think most of them are. If I'm perfectly <laughs> honest, with you. Uh, <laughs> I write um, I write a column for a magazine called Detail, which is a magazine for for modernists, and um, I'm trying to I'm trying to slay those old dragons of you know we don't we don't have to be like this. We can move on. You know, yeah. we can we can grow up a little bit. Um, so it's quite fun to kind of poke that bee's nest and uh, <laughs> watch the reaction yeah. for that. Um, That's the thing, though, isn't it? No. With a lot of like genres like that, you know, the mods and the rockers and all that kind of thing. If someone says to you mod, you ha- you immediately have a picture in your mind yeah. of what yeah. a mod looks like. So it's yeah. it's great that you're kind of trying to update and it's normally the wrong is. picture. It's normally it's normally they've just got some bloke in a green parka with a target <laughs> on it. It's very it's very much the quadrophenia yes, um, yes. style image. Um, and don't get me wrong, quadrophenia I think is a good film. Um, I hosted the the quadrophenia was it a revival a few years ago at the Hammersmith Apollo. So they were showing the film, re-showing the film. Uh, and then I interviewed the cast uh, and the director on stage at the Apollo oh, nice. after after they'd shown it. But it was, it, in some ways, it was a great gig, and in some ways, it was slightly slightly depressing gig. Because what you had there was three thousand mods, all of a certain age, all bald and not oh. fitting into their Fred Perry shirts, and and that's a, that's a, that's a sweeping generalisation. But I'd say at least eighty percent of people were like that, um, and they ran these kind of theatrical vignettes before they started the film like when I first went on what was supposed to happen was that a policeman was supposed to come on stage and tell me to clear off we don't want any of your (laughs) sort around here right it was just a theatrical thing so this policeman walks on in 60s police gear because it's supposed to be quadrophenia and 3,000 mods went oi mate get off the stage what do you what do you think this is we pay good money for this I just you know I had to explain to them look that's <laughs> it's <laughs> it's a joke all right calm down <laughs> oh dear um, so i mean obviously being a being a stand-up most of your adult life i mean do you have you had the chance to see a lot of live bands or over the years not or really what? not really i went to see paul weller quite a lot um i went to see paul weller the last time i went to see paul and it was a good time a long time ago because if I'm not in the UK, yeah. I'm not in the UK if I'm not working. So it's yeah, very yeah, difficult yeah. to go and see gigs. Mm. But I went to a gig. Paul Weller was playing um, Brixton Academy. That was it. And I went with my good friend, Paul Thorne, who's a very good comic. Uh, and Dar- and we bumped into Dara Brian and Andy Parsons on, on the way. So we all kind of walked in together. And we're all a bit late. And Paul, my friend... Paul Thorne had said to me beforehand, he said, I'm not dressing up like a mod. I'm not doing that. Just going to Paul Wellicons. I'm not dressing up like a mod. And I went, of course, that's fine. It doesn't, you don't have to. It's not the law. You, <laughs> you know, you'll stand out, but don't worry about it. And as we got in, we were slightly late and we got in the big double doors at Brixton Academy smashed open and this enormous mod came out 
practically in tears and just went, he, he sort of poked at my chest and went, it's, it's not like the old days, mate. It's just me and you in there. And, and it was just, it, and like Paul and Dara and Andy just fell about that we were now these kind of, Paul Thorne now calls mods Chelsea pensioners. That's, that came from all of that <laughs> that night. Um, <laughs> so no, I don't get to see a lot of bands. I don't, um, I would like to go, like I said, we're going to go and see Pulp next year. And I don't like music festivals. I did a few music festivals back in the day and yeah. um, I didn't enjoy them at all. Yeah. No, I mean, that's the thing, I suppose. If you're working, if you're in the UK, as you say, and you're working nights, you know, when are you going to, yeah. when are you no, going to be exactly. able to live band? Exactly. No, it's just, it's just not feasible. You know, I, I spent little enough time at home as it was. So saying to, saying to Natalie and the boys, <laughs> well, I'm just, I'm just going to go away for a couple of days and watch some music. It's all right. <laughs> no, you've got croissants to make. <laughs> exactly. Yeah. He's going to, he's going to serve breakfast. <laughs> so, I mean, what have you got on the, what have you got coming up? Coming up, I'm actually coming over to the UK. Uh, is it next week? A couple of weeks time. I've got um, some book events. Uh, interestingly enough, one of the book events I'm doing in hay in Ledbury. You're going to make some cheese. I'm going to make some cheese. <laughs> um, but I'm doing it with another author, and that other author is Mark Billingham. Now, oh, Mark wow. Billingham was a stand-up um, before he came uh, this international phenomenon as a, as a crime writer. So it's really funny that I am doing my first two-hander author event with Mark. We haven't been on stage together for like 20 years. And also, Mark was on the bill at that first ever gig at Bedford all those years ago because he was part of the Tracy brothers. Yeah. yeah. So it's, it's, it's kind of, um, it's come beautifully full circle. Um, so I'm looking, I'm really looking forward to that. Got quite a few events coming up like that and capital crime at the end of September. Um, quite a few corporates. I've got another book to edit. Uh, I've got a fourth book to write. Um, I've got whinging guests moaning about their <laughs> undercooked croissant. <laughs> It must be great though to be welcomed into the the crime genre in in books is it's huge huge it is huge it is huge and it's and it it, it like I said it wasn't it wasn't expected it you know it wasn't expected at all this level of success that I've had with it I I didn't expect that at all I was just really pleased to to be published happy to to be in shops you know um it's it's all to be to be honest it's all a bit surreal yeah you know it's it's all a bit peculiar um i'm still getting used to it and still there's always that that stand-up kind of insecurity behind you going uh well this 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 isn't going to last <laughs> <laughs> this will never last yeah. get a job get a proper job <laughs> You've got a proper job now, but I mean, I know, it must, be, it I know. must be so surreal though, walking into a bookshop and seeing your this, oh, your, just... your one of your children basically yeah. on a on a on yeah. the best bestseller shelf. I know it is just, it is phenomenal, you know. And uh, where was I? I was in uh, Waterstones on Piccadilly because I was going to be doing an event with with another um, writer, uh, which never turned out. It never happened in the end. But I went to buy her book just so I knew what I was going to be, you know, who who I was dealing with. And, um, and, and, uh, what I went to pay for the book and one of the assistants said, Oh, if, if you're really into crime writing, I can recommend this, this book. I mean, and I went, yeah, I wrote that. 
and and it was really you know it was really funny it was really it was my you know and I, I get emails from audible now recommending me my own audiobook um <laughs> bizarre as if, as if i don't hear the sound of my own voice often enough yeah i mean that's another aspect of of books now isn't it the audiobook is is, is huge business as well so massive that must be quite yeah. gratifying as well to you know that people can hear you rather than do you know what I mean you don't really yeah you didn't know the author you know m- many moons ago before social media and all that kind of stuff you wouldn't know what an author sounded like who you know I mean it wouldn't, that's right it and, and, be and even now but... even now a lot of authors don't read their own audiobooks um certainly not in fiction mm. so so for me to do mine it, it is it is more accessible I guess um I'm also a lot cheaper than professionals <laughs> <laughs> so they got me they got me on the sly really yeah but, no, but it was they, good fun to do it's really good fun to do yeah yeah well they're your words at the end of the day so yeah, i mean who exactly, better to, yeah. who better to speak and they're my to characters them. as well and and giving them different accents and and stuff has been a real that's just been a lot of fun yeah yeah so when can we expect the uh next book i know this book's only came out it only came out this year only a few months ago <laughs> give me a break <laughs> Um, there's a Christmas book coming out. Uh, a short, they released a short story uh, just on a Kindle or ebook last Christmas, but Waterstones are putting that out as a sort of festive hardback. Um, so that's coming out next. And then the third one in the uh, Follow Valley series comes out next July. The paperback, Death and Fromage, comes out in April, and Death at the Chateau comes out in July in hardback. And then I think it's next September. Um, it's another book, more serious crime um, that I've written. So we'll see how that. No jokes in that one. No jokes in that one. Had to, and this bit that was quite interesting. So almost had to um, suppress your natural instincts to mm. to get that right. You know, there are elements of humour in it, but not uh, the kind of knockabout stuff that I can get away with in the other one. Yeah, I mean that's the thing. How do you turn that off? How do you turn off that part of your brain when you're when you're writing? You, you have know? to go I mean, back and so rewrite natural. it. It becomes so natural, you know. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> you just have to go back and rewrite it. You, you know, sometimes you write something and then you read it back and you go, "Look, that's funny, but that is not what that character would do or say." You know, so it does. It makes no sense there. Take the line out, make a note with the line. You may be able to use it in whatever else. But that has to be a different response that that character would come up with. Yeah, yeah, must be a long old process. <laughs> Do you know what I mean? It is. It is. I mean, and, what, and how what's... long are you? How long are you averaging for, for per book at the moment? Um, it's about six or seven months it takes if I get a good run at it. Mm. Um, what I find hard it's not it's not the writing I find so hard in terms of the length of process. It's how um, obviously with stand up your audience feedback is absolutely immediate. Whereas this, I yeah, have to, yeah. you know, this, like, like I said, death at the chateau, I finished at the start of the summer, but I'm, it's not going to be read by anybody until a year after, you know, that's, that's, a, that's a lot, that's a long time to suppress your, again, your natural instincts of where's the laugh. I need the laugh. <laughs> That delayed gratification. Yeah, it must be yeah. must be an absolute killer for a stand up, you know. It's 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 a hard thing to deal with initially. Yeah, yeah, definitely. It's then it's probably the hardest thing I've had to deal with is is showing a level of patience that you just don't have to do in stand up. 
what's a, you know this this new avenue it's, it's all about learning new skills isn't it you know? yeah i'm not saying i've coped with it at all well by the way i'm just saying it's an ambition <laughs> just taking what's thrown at you not yeah. food, not not food necessarily yeah no no nobody's that's just what mark said actually when we when we found out we were doing this event together he said finally we can be on stage and nobody's going to throw anything at us so it'd be, uh, yeah yeah that's, that's really setting ourselves up for a fall, <laughs> isn't it? <laughs> just don't provide, just make sure there's no food or anything on the, yeah. on the day. <laughs> but uh, thanks so much for chatting with me today, Ian. It's been an absolute pleasure. Oh, thank you, Paula. I've enjoyed it. Enjoyed it thoroughly. Mm-hmm.